Howard Kirby got the surprise of his life last month when he found over $43,000 in cash inside a couch that he had purchased at the Habitat for Humanity Restore in Michigan. Kirby purchased the couch to outfit his man cave, but um, said that the ottoman felt odd and uncomfortable. And his daughter eventually unzipped the cushion to examine it further and discovered stacks of $100 bills. A total of $43,170 was found inside the couch, but Kirby didn't feel morally right in keeping it. He went back to the store to seek out the original owner and tell them about the cash. Well, Kim Fouth Newberry came into possession of the couch after her grandfather, the original owner, passed away last year, and she said that she had no idea that there was money inside that couch when she gave it away. How many of you read about that in the news? Yeah, the Restore surprised her by calling her down to the shop and returning every last dime that Kirby had found. It's just crazy, she said. It's completely awesome. Kirby had reportedly sought legal advice about his rights to the money and was told that he was under no obligation to return it. Despite having the legal right to keep it, he thought giving it back was the right thing to do. So store manager Rick Merling praised Kirby for leading by example and putting the needs of someone else above his own. Just doing the right thing to me, he says, this is someone who in spite of what they're going through, in spite of their own needs, has said, I'm just going to do the right thing. Kirby claimed that he could have used the money for a new roof, but is happy the cash found its way back to the original owner. I always thought, he said, what would I do if that ever happened? Well, now I know. He said, and it makes me feel good, unquote. Doing the right thing doesn't just feel good, it is good. And it brings God pleasure when we do that. And he's seriously displeased when we don't do the right thing. I think for at least two reasons. First, because obedience brings him glory. Secondly, disobedience brings us misery and sets us up as Christians for spiritual shipwreck. Now, I don't know the spiritual status of this man's heart, but whatever it was that caused him to act with integrity is reflective of the conscience God gave him when he created him. And he followed it. I wish that that could be said about Saul, Israel's first king. As we've been looking at the life of Saul over the last couple of weeks, we find that Saul's conscience had become seared. Saul began to set the course for his own shipwreck the instant that he turned away from wholehearted obedience to God's revealed will. And as we've seen, he repeatedly spiraled downhill because of it. His half-hearted devotion to the Lord had been exposed by his continual pattern of prideful decision-making and the result was that his kingdom did not endure. Now you see, God's concerned with our obedience, seriously concerned with it. His ultimate pleasure is rooted in our personal obedience. And Saul's problem, as we've discovered, was not that he disobeyed once or twice. His shipwreck was rooted in the fact that his heart did not belong completely to God. 
And it begs the question for us all, does yours and mine? Friends, Saul's spiritual shipwreck did not have to happen, not by any stretch. If he had heeded the warnings, it would not have. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to conclude our mini-series here on this text. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 35. And I'm going to refrain from reading this whole passage again. But uh, we'll unpack a few more things today. As we've studied this passage, we've been digging deep into this issue of obedience and disobedience. And with every shovel full of text, we've uncovered areas in Saul's experience that should aid us in avoiding shipwreck in our own lives. So let's kind of go down through some of the points that we've looked at. First of all, we looked at Saul's serious commission in the first three verses and the principle that a serious commission from the Lord demands specific consideration from us. And you see that in verses 1 to 3. Saul's commission was very clear there, wipe out the Amalekites. And failure to comply with God's commission would result in serious, far-reaching consequences upon Israel and on Saul's kingship, which in fact we found that eventually did. Saul had this divinely ordained serious commission and he didn't take it seriously. Yet he didn't consider the consequences of not adhering to the specifics according to God's plan. So again, in a matter of personal application, what is it that God has commissioned you to do specifically that you have not considered carefully enough? We posed that question a couple of weeks ago because a serious commission demands specific consideration. Secondly, we saw in verses 4 to 11 the selfish concession here of Saul. Selfish concessions result in serious compromises. In verse 9, we find a key warning. It says here that after this commission that they were supposed to wipe out the Amalekites it says in verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and uh, the oxen, fatlings, lambs, and all that was good, and they were not willing to destroy them as God commanded. That's a very key line. It's the small selfish concessions that lead to huge spiritual compromises. Amen? And so what are they for you and me? What small spiritual concessions might we be engaged in that will lead eventually to gigantic spiritual compromises? We all have to do some self-examination on that kind of thing. Saul made a selfish concession here and ended up involved in a devastating state of spiritual compromise. And he never recovered from that. Because it says in verse 10 that God regretted in verse 11, I'm sorry, that God regretted that he made Saul king. Serious words. And it's not just said once, it's repeated again at the end of the passage. If you look at verse 35, it all concludes with these words, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's kind of like the period on the whole thing. And then we find from that point on that it just gets increasingly and steadily worse for Saul. And God chose David, a man after his own heart, to replace him. Because selfish concessions inevitably result in sinful compromises, we open up ourselves to spiritual confrontation when we do that. 
And that's exactly what happened to Saul in a big way. So the third thing we uncovered was that the spiritual confrontation is that sinful compromise begets spiritual confrontation. Samuel wasted no time in confronting Saul's disobedience and uncovering what was really going on in Saul's heart. And we find that in verses 12 to 23. And it starts out with Saul's pride in verses 12 to 14. What does Proverbs say about pride? Well, in Proverbs 11, verses 2 and 3, we find that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. That pretty much characterizes Saul, didn't it? But with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Saul was plagued by pride. He was a proud leader. He thought he was above following the specifics of what God had said, and that brought him down. And so we discover in verse 15, Saul's pragmatism, that when he's confronted with his sin, what's his first reaction that we found? What's he do? He blames it on somebody else. He passes the buck. When confronted with disobedience, Saul conveniently passed it off. He blamed everything and everybody else for his own sin, but what he should have done was owned it. He should have admitted his wrong, but he refused to do that. But Samuel didn't let him off the hook that easy. Samuel's pointed finger comes out in verses 16 through 19 very clearly, and uh, he confronts him. And yet after the convicting words of Samuel, Saul still continues to rationalize his actions. And that's what happens when pride takes over your life and you get caught in a sin and you don't admit it. The next thing is you have to keep denying it and you have to keep on lying and building upon that lie, don't you? And it gets worse and worse and worse for you. He persisted in refusing to own up to his own disobedience. And we see that in verses 20 and 21, Saul's shameless persistence. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Well, we find that he didn't, did he? All this bleeding sheep and lowing of the oxen and all this stuff that's going on in the background basically told the truth about what Saul really did. And there's this glaring lack of repentance here in Saul's heart that we find. And you know what that says? That says that Saul was unteachable. He was unteachable. That is a devastating death blow to any leader. As Steve Ferrara once said, let's put it on the table, shall we? If you're not teachable, you don't have a chance in the world of finishing strong. Not a chance. And he's absolutely right, isn't he? A man in a small Wisconsin city had been in AA for about three years and had enjoyed being sober for a, a period of time. Well, then bad luck began to hit him in his business. The firm for which he had worked for some 15 years ended up being sold, and his particular job was phased out of existence, and the plant was moved to another city. And for several months, he struggled at odd jobs while looking for a company that needed his specialized experience. But then, on top of that, another blow hit him. 
His wife was forced to enter a hospital for major surgery, and his company insurance had expired. At this point, he cracked and decided on an all-out binge. He didn't want to stage this in the small city where everyone knew his sobriety record, so he got in his car and he went to Chicago and he checked into a Northside hotel and set forth on this binge that he wanted to engage in. It was Friday night. The bars were filled with swinging crowds, but he was in no mood to swing. He just wanted to get quietly, miserably drunk. So finally, he found a basement bar on a quiet side street, practically deserted. He sat down on a bar stool and ordered a double bourbon on the rocks. And the bartender said, yes, sir. And he reached for the bottle. And then the bartender stopped in his tracks, took a long, hard look at the customer. He leaned over the bar and he said in a low tone, I was in Milwaukee about four months ago. And one night I attended an open AA meeting. And you were on the speaking platform. And you gave one of the finest talks that I have ever heard in my life. And then the bartender turned and walked to the other end of the bar. But for a few minutes, the guy just sat there, probably in a state of shock. With trembling hands, he picked up his money from the bar and he walked out. All desire for a drink had been drained right out of him. It's estimated, now get this, it's estimated that there are about 8,000 bars in Chicago employing some 25,000 bartenders. And this man had entered the one saloon in 8,000 where he would encounter one man in 25,000 who knew that he was a member of AA and didn't belong in that bar. What, what, are, the, what are the chances of that? As far as I know, says the writer, the man who had this amazing experience did not know the Lord. But I will tell you this, the Lord was looking out for him. Amen. He heard the message quite clearly, and he did something about it. He didn't drink. Why? Because he was teachable. That was not Saul. He was absolutely unteachable. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you teachable? Because that's what God wants. He wants a heart that is wholeheartedly devoted to him. And the only way that you and I are ever going to get to that place is to be teachable. Listen to Samuel's memorable words, his precise words in verses 22 and 23. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God's word's pretty clear. You cannot willingly transgress God's clearly revealed will and expect him to be pleased with you. He won't be pleased with your lip service 
in the midst of your rebellion. And through a long series of, of tiny concessions, Saul's disobedience spiraled downward to a place that neither he nor anyone else could have ever imagined at the end of it all. And we saw some of that last week. He disregarded God's prophet. He disobeyed God's purpose. He ended up destroying God's priests a few chapters from now. And then he degraded God's person by indulging in witchcraft, in divination. And then eventually he took his own life. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin coupled with an unteachable spirit is a slippery slope to spiritual defection and destruction. God delights in our obedience. In his rich and challenging book, The Pleasures of God, John Piper outlines at least five reasons why God despises disobedience. And I briefly listed them for you last time at the end of the message. And I told you we were going to get into them today. Well, we're going to get into them right now. I'm compelled to share them with you in greater detail today because they're so pertinent to our complete devotion to Christ. He lists them in order of least to most serious. God despises disobedience because, number one, it reveals misplaced fear. Verse 24 here. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words. Why? Because I, what? Feared the people. I feared the people and listened to their voice. The wrong voices prevailed here in Saul's ears. Instead of listening to what God said and the prophets said, he listened to what the people were saying. Just as in the case of Pilate, when he condemned Christ to be crucified. You remember that in the New Testament? It even says it in the scriptures. It says, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate washed his hands and gave in to them when he knew Christ to be innocent. He bowed to the pressure of his peers rather than what he knew to be true. You find that in Luke 23. But it doesn't matter whether it's Saul, the king here, or Pilate, or you, or me. When we fear the human consequences of obedience to Christ more than we fear the divine consequences of sin, then we are in a very bad place. We show that our hearts are not completely his. And it's an insult to God. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The first chapter of Proverbs, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27 says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. And in Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. We find later on in Saul's life that he was very much touched by evil. And he didn't really sleep well. In fact, 
an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him because the Holy Spirit left him. Interestingly, this was Samuel's clear counsel to Saul and the people all along. As a matter of fact, if you turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 12 and look at verse 14. 1 Samuel 12, verse 14. Samuel says to the people, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. They were warned and they heard it. They knew it. And the words of Isaiah ought to penetrate our own souls. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 51, verses 12 and 13. The Lord says, I, even I, am the one who comforts you. So why are you afraid of mere humans? You fear man more than God? Why are you afraid of mere humans who wither like grass and disappear? Yet you have forgotten the Lord, your creator, the one who puts the stars in the sky and established the earth. Will you remain in constant dread of human oppression? Will you continue to fear the anger of your enemies from morning till night? Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4 says, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, Lord. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Are you one of those people that are so afraid of what other people might say that you refuse to stand up for what God says is right? Because here's the point. If your greatest fear, if my greatest fear is what men and women can do to me, we've begun to deny the holiness and the worthiness and the sovereign power of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Disobedience reveals a misplaced fear. Secondly, it reveals a misplaced pleasure. Verse 21 here. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, he said, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Well, Saul tried to convince Samuel that a noble intention was at the root of the disobedience, but the Lord knew infinitely better because he knew the real motive of Saul and the people's hearts, and he revealed it to Samuel. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? That, that phrase, rushed upon the spoil, it's very instructive there. Like birds of prey, Saul and the people literally, the word means swooped upon the spoil. They wanted it for themselves. The same thing happened to them when they defeated the Philistines and ended up sinning grievously back in chapter 14 
in verses 31 and 32. They were at war with the Philistines. And it says, they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very weary. And the people rushed greedily, same thing, upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. You know what that meant for a Jew? That was utterly, utterly abhorrent and against the commands of God. It was an abomination. The fact is, their desire was not for the Lord, it was for themselves. They didn't save those choice cattle and oxen and sheep to sacrifice to the Lord. They wanted it for themselves. Remember the statement, God is most glorified in us when we are what? Most satisfied in what? In him. Well, these people were not satisfied with their God. Their pleasure was in the spoil, not in obedience. It was misplaced pleasure. They delighted more in fat sheep and tasty meat than in their fellowship and intimacy with God. Now, how relevant is that to you and me? Do we delight more in the fleeting pleasures of this life, even in sin, than we do in the smile of God when we obey him with an undivided heart? Disobedience reveals not only misplaced fear and misplaced pleasure, but thirdly, Piper says, it reveals misplaced praise. You see, Saul had become more interested in his glory than God's glory. If you look at verse 12, we find out that Saul went to Carmel and set up a monument for himself. And that is so starkly different from the way that Saul started out because he started out with a, with a perfectly correct attitude. If you turn um, back to, uh, let's see, chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and look at verse 15. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come up to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. And then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. See, Saul had no inclination whatsoever that he was ever going to be king. Saul was out looking for donkeys at this point. Lost donkeys for his dad. And he meets up with Samuel, and Samuel says, come up with me. We're going to sacrifice on the high places, and we're going to eat this meal, and you're going to be honored. Saul says, what is all of this about? As for your donkeys, in verse 20, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? You see, Samuel's beginning to lift Saul up and honor him. Saul replied, great reply. No pride here. 
Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited who were about 30 men. You see, Saul began in humility. Humility comes before honor. Let me ask you a question. Are you content to obey the Lord simply for the result that his name is glorified and not your own? Am I? It's a question I constantly wrestle with. Most of us do. At least I hope we do, right? We wrestle with it. We don't just give in to it. A quote by Charles Spurgeon comes to mind right now, and it convicts me to the core Spurgeon once said, quote, let us measure ourselves by our master and not by our fellow servants, then pride will be impossible. It's a good statement. Disobedience reveals misplaced praise. Fourthly, disobedience also reveals misplaced loyalty. Misplaced loyalty. And again, in verses 22 and 23, Samuel said to Saul, you know, the Lord doesn't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices if you're not in obedience to him. He wants your obedience. He delights in that before he delights in heartless sacrifices that you make. And then verse 23 is critical. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, witchcraft. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Here we get the skinny of how God really feels about partial obedience. He hates it. Because why? What does it say here? It's rebellion. It's rebellion. Of the 45 times that rebellion, this word rebellion is used in the Old Testament, 40 of those times refers to man's disobedience against God. And rebellion, it says here, is as the sin of witchcraft, divination. How much does God despise the sin of divination? Well, Exodus 22 and verse 18 says, you shall not allow a witch or a sorceress to live. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let me just read this to you. Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 through 14 says these words. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, or one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. What's the connection between rebellion and divination? Here it is. 
Mark it well. Divination is seeking to know what one should do in a way that ignores the word and counsel of God. It totally discounts God's revealed will and says, I must seek better guidance from somewhere else. In effect, it makes worthless the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Is playing with a Ouija board dangerous? That's just a game, right? Stupid, silly little game. Is consulting a medium harmful? Is dialing the psychic network innocent fun? I've talked to plenty of Christians that think it is. You tell me. What does it say right here? I got a better idea. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. But it goes deeper than that. When God says one thing, we say, I think I will consult another source of wisdom other than God. That's why it's divination. And most often, you know what that other source is? Us. Ultimately, it ends up being us. And the contrast is very clear in these verses. It's a conflict between God's will and self-will. Verse 22 illustrates God's desire. What's it say? To obey and to heed. Verse 23 describes Saul's desire, rebellion and insubordination. And that is sometimes ours as well. This is how it works. Operating according to God's will means, number one, to obey. In verse 22, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You know what to obey means? Means you say, I'll do it. That's obedience. I'll do it. To obey. And then it says, to heed is better than the fat of rams. You know what to heed is? To heed something means you say, I'll do it God's way. It's not just I'll do it, but I'll do it God's way. Okay? That's operating according to God's will. Here's operating according to self-will. It smacks of, verse 23 says, rebellion. You know what rebellion is? Rebellion is you saying, I won't do it. And then it says, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. You know what insubordination says? Insubordination says, I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way, Frank Sinatra. Did you know that that is the most popular song of all time to be played at a funeral? Yes, that is true. In both the United States and the UK. I'll do it my way. No, I'll do it, and I'll do it God's way is what God blesses. But what Saul did here, he said, I won't do it. I will do it my way. John Piper wrote, disobedience of God's word puts my own wisdom in the place of God's will and thus insults God as the only sure and reliable source of wisdom. What's he call it? He calls it iniquity, and he calls it idolatry. Why? Because we become God. We know better than him. What does it say about your trust in your doctor if he gives you a prescription for three pills a day and you only take one? 
What is that actually saying? It says, you think you know better than your doctor. I'm not even going to get into whether you do or not. But <laughs> don't, you don't, what it says is, is that you don't trust his or her competence or his or her wisdom. That's what it says. And you know what it is? It's an insult. And guess what? Your health is going to go south, most likely. The fact is the same thing is true in our spiritual life. Disobedience reveals misplaced fear, misplaced pleasure, misplaced praise, misplaced loyalty, and finally, it reveals misplaced worship. Misplaced worship. In verse 23, it says that it is iniquity and idolatry. Idolatry. This is exactly the temptation Satan ultimately used to test Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. You remember that? Matthew chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10. Thank goodness that Jesus obeyed. Not Saul. Saul did not respond correctly to the same test. But here's Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. What does Jesus say? Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and began to minister to him. Disobedience is iniquity and idolatry, it says here. When we are stubborn enough to reject the clear teaching of Christ and his word and choose to go our own way, we are, for all intents and purposes, idolaters. And the worst part about it is we become the idol. Is there any question as to why God despises disobedience? From every angle, it is an attack on his person in an attempt to usurp his glory. Again, as John Piper writes, he says, quote, it puts the fear of man in the place of the fear of God. It elevates pleasure in things above pleasure in God. It seeks a name for itself instead of a name for God. It seeks out additional guidance besides God's instead of resting in the wisdom of God. And it sets more value on the dictates of self than on the dictates of God and thus attempts to dethrone God by giving allegiance to the idol of human will, unquote. Basically a summary on all we just said. In a phrase, Saul played the fool. Played the fool. And you know, that could be his epitaph. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, in verse 21, we read these words of Saul. I have sinned. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed serious error. You know what happens when a man plays the fool? This is J. Sidlow Baxter's thoughts on that. Number one, when a man plays the fool, he neglects his godly friends. He begins to neglect his godly friends. Number two, he goes on enterprises for God before God calls him to do so before God sends him. He disobeys God even in seemingly small matters. He tries to cover up his disobedience to God with religious excuses. 
He tries to persuade himself he's doing the will of God when deep down inside he knows he's doing otherwise. He allows some jealousy or envy to master and control and deprave him. He knowingly fights against God. And finally, he turns from his God, the God he has grieved, and seeks an alternative in spiritism, trafficking with the spirits and the beyond. I bet you didn't realize the extent of God's desire for obedience, did you? Saul's disobedience and his defense of it proved him to be a false follower. But friends, remember this. Please remember this. I said it last week, and I want to repeat it again this week. No amount of words which profess faith in Christ can counteract a life that denies him. Words don't matter. Actions matter. But there's always forgiveness with God. There is always forgiveness with God. For two weeks I've been giving you all this bad news. But there is good news. There's forgiveness with God when we come to him in repentance in a sincere heart. Right? Words of confession mean absolutely nothing. Tears of sorrow are worthless if a heart of repentance does not follow that. Unfortunately, Saul had the right words, didn't he? I have sinned. But his heart didn't follow it. He didn't have the heart. And by the way, that is the difference between David's fall and Saul's fall. David's heart was contrite. The scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart. It says that in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, and it says it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. But Saul's heart was not. Saul's heart was corrupt. And here we find his sordid confession. Half-hearted devotion, here's the principle, half-hearted devotion leads to wholehearted rejection. Verse 24. Follow along with me as I read the rest of this text. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. And so Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Interesting verses here and plays on words. First of all, it was Saul's half-hearted request in verses 24 and 25, and then in verse 30. Saul says, I've sinned. He said it twice, right? Saul's confession may have been verbally accurate, but it seems that it was very inwardly askew. He was more concerned with maintaining his respect and honor before the people than he was in manifesting his regret and brokenness before the Lord. You notice that? 
Samuel, come back with me and honor me now, in verse 30, before the elders of my people and before Israel. He wanted to save face. He didn't care about being sorry for his sin. I once read that Mark Twain encountered a ruthless businessman from Boston during his travels who boasted that nobody ever got his way once he determined to do something. He said, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm going to go climb Mount Sinai. And when I get up there, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top of my voice. Unimpressed, Mark Twain responded, I got a better idea. Stay in Boston and keep them. (laughs) Notice the difference between Saul's reaction to sin and David's reaction to sin. See what Saul did here, right? Now turn to Psalm 51 and see what David's reaction was when his sin was pointed out. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned. He didn't care about what the people thought. He cared about what God thought. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak. He didn't pass the buck. He didn't rationalize away. And blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. This is David's heart. And in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my Iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is what David is saying. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted unto you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O Lord, God of my salvation. My tongue will joyfully declare... Your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. For an offering doesn't bring you pleasure, but a broken heart, right? A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. This is David's heart. Stark difference to what Saul was saying. Huge difference. Saul shrank away from the punishment. He exhibited shifty, superficial behavior. He made excuses. He defended himself. He never asked for God's forgiveness. Notice that here. He never asked for God's forgiveness, only Samuel's forgiveness. David, however, knew his sin was ultimately against God. David was repulsed and shrank away in shame from the sin itself. Saul reeled from the fact that he got caught and now he was going to be dishonored among the people. 
Here's the big question. Which describes your heart and your heart's response to sin when sin finds you out? Well, we see what Saul's result was here, what the result was against Saul's fake confession, really. In verses 26 to 31, we just read it, God's wholehearted rejection of him. God's rejection of Saul was the result of Saul's total defection from God. See, God didn't abandon Saul until Saul abandoned God. And God then gave him over to his own devices. Make no mistake about it, God doesn't move, my friends, we do. God doesn't move. And as he turns away, as Samuel turns away, Saul grabs his cloak and it tears. And it's a classic picture, metaphor of what's going on here that Samuel turns around and said, God's going to tear the kingdom out from your hands and give it to somebody who has the kind of heart that I'm looking for. And so we find the swift consummation here in verses 32 and 33 that public disobedience deserves public rebuke. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, this king that you salvaged that I said to wipe out. The king of the Amalekites said, Agag came to him cheerfully and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. The prophet had to carry out the commission that Saul had by God because Saul failed and refused to do it. My friends, God's word, and know this for a fact, that God's word, God's will, will ultimately be carried out one way or the other, with or without our acquiescence. We're either going to get on God's side and do his will, or he's going to do it without us. But it will be accomplished. And then finally, the severe consequences in verses 34 and 35. And the principle here, as we wrap it up, is this. Irresponsible choices lead to irreversible consequences. Verse 34, then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What a sad ending to this passage. Now, I once heard David Jeremiah say in a series on the life of David, he said these words. He said, God cannot undo what's already been done. Meditate on that one this week. Because it's true. God cannot undo what's already been done. It is indeed a tragedy when someone starts out so strong for the Lord and ends so shamefully. God can change things around and turn them around for good. But he's not going to undo what's already been done necessarily. 
You know, and this thing that happened to Saul, this tragedy, it can happen to any one of us if our hearts are not committed to Christ. The inevitable result of an authentic faith is an obedient life. Not a perfect life, mind you, an obedient life. One whose pattern is a pursuit after God like David's heart. One that is broken in the right place and quick to repent. Not that it's one that never sins, but one that is quick to repent when the sin is found out. Does that describe your heart? Remember the warnings. Saul had them, and we have them too. Number one, defection does not happen suddenly. It's the result of little compromises and concessions along the way. Number two, defection often takes place in times of blessing. How many of you figured that one out, that sometimes we sin grievously in times when things are going great for us? Saul allowed success and victory to spoil him. As Chuck Swindoll said, when testing comes, we are purified, but when prosperity comes, we're vulnerable. The biblical examples of that are just so numerous. Thirdly, defection flourishes under loose leadership. In Saul's case, Israel defected because Saul defected. Defection involves forsaking the true God and finding a substitute. Remember the warnings, but also remember that defection has a remedy. The grace of God through faith in Christ. Confess, repent, receive. That's the order. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says this, Therefore go and give this message to Israel. This is what the Lord says. O Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against him by worshiping idols under every green tree. Confess that you refuse to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. And the New Testament counterpart to that for us is in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that if we claim that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, at times, every single one of us face what Saul faced in effect faced with destructive desires of selfishness and pride. The kind of desires that when we, if we were to act on them, would necessarily harm ourselves or others. Remember, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And those things harm us, they harm others, and they distance ourselves from God. In Douglas Kane McKelvey's quirky book, Every Moment Holy, there's a prayer that expresses the sorrow of such desire and pleads with God to elevate our minds to far better ones. So I'd like to use that prayer in that book as a closing. And I invite you to make it your own. So let's close our eyes and listen to these words and make them our own prayer.
You might be in that place where you feel like a Saul today. I hope you're not. But if you are, recognize that we're in a very different place since Christ has come and shed his blood. That the opportunity for forgiveness and restoration is constantly before us in the form of Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian and you're in that place where you're in disobedience to God, just remember that if you confess that and repent of it, Christ will forgive it and lift you up. And so if you're there, we need to pray this prayer. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that we're I to indulge in it would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. Oh Christ, rather let my life be yours. Take my desires, let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. Faced with this temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus. But I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you, knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for. No lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. Let me build then, my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity and unto your welcoming arms and unto the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment, well done.